Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, broadcaster and author Joe Duffy chairs a history question time panel featuring historians Jennifer Wellington, Katrina Crow, and Donald Fallon, recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 1st of October 2017. everybody. Um, one o'clock on a Sunday. Uh, really appreciate uh, you turning out, um, all students of history um, and anyone who's been uh, at any of the events over the last five years at this wonderful, giving, generous festival of learning and um, sharing uh, knows that the atmosphere is always uh, extraordinarily good, um, extraordinarily educative um, and extraordinarily open. Um, so today is a very, I think it's a new idea that they've uh, tried, or are going to try, that is just to uh, take questions, uh, we already have a number of them uh, submitted, and from the public, and put it to almost like a quiz, almost as if they're doing, and if in, the, in the room behind there, it was as if Donald, Katrina and Jennifer were preparing for the final exams as they went through and tried to prep their answers and said things like, yes, I'll try that answer, uh, or that question indeed, and I had to point out to them that this is not like uh, their leaving certificate, um, where they pick two questions. They're going to have to have a go at nearly all the questions, including including the uh, the, diff- the the very difficult ones. Uh, the panel, as you know, uh, Bert already introduced Katrina Crow. Katrina, believe it or not, uh, is uh, in retirement at the moment, though that meant for Katrina that she's even busier than she was when she was uh, in the National Archive. And she spoke um, at the uh, presentation, so to speak, to Roy Foster, the historian, on Friday night. And she used great phrases about Roy, about he made Irish history accessible in the UK, put it back on the agenda. But in truth, these are all words you could apply to Katrina because she has made uh, history accessible in Ireland. She's one of this new uh, breed of people's historians. The, the work on digitizing and also uh, being so evangelical about the 1911 census is uh, seminal and I doubt if there's anyone in this room, given your interest in history, who hasn't actually uh, had a go at the 1911 census. It's still it's it's a it's a wonderful wonderful uh, document and archive. And Katrina is working on many many projects still. Uh, Jennifer Wellington is uh, from Australia and is currently lecturer in modern history uh, in UCD. And when I suggested that the proper title would be, if you're in the states, the proper title would be uh, assistant professor. She uh, recoiled at such pretentiousness. And um, her area, she's a book coming out in a, in a few weeks' time. What's, give us the full title of the book, Jennifer. It came out. Last oh, week. came out, OK. Yeah. What's the full title is? Um, it's called Exhibiting War. Um, Exhibit. The Great War Museums and Memory in Britain, Canada, and Australia. OK, well, that's, okay. that means you're going to be uh, very relevant to our first question. And Donald Fallon is uh, in also lectures times in UCD, uh, is a, a historian in residence in uh, Dublin Public Libraries, one of five, which is a magnificent uh, project as well. And all of you have the brochure and you see all the different events, every single one of them free. 
that's uh, on in your local libraries, the, our, our Aladdin's cave that will be forever protected and free in Ireland as long as uh, Katrina, Jennifer, Donald, myself and all of you can uh, stand up, aided or unaided, if anyone ever tries to touch them to such a, uh, such a resource. Okay, the first question, by the way, is there anyone in the audience that, um, that has submitted a question? Because I don't have the... We, Okay, well, I'd just give me general sense, sir, and there will be microphones as well. What, what was your question about, sir? It's about the, uh, what happened to Okay, I'll, I'll get to that, definitely. What's this second part? What was your question? Oh, the economic war, and was it romantic? Oh, yeah, what a fascinating question. And what was the, the third person? Say again, sorry? Okay, networks are research. Okay, I haven't seen that one, but I'll try and get them. We will get the question. The first question, it's probably uh, very uh, relevant today. Though today, Katrina, would you rather be outside the Spanish embassy protesting about what's going on in the, the history being, is history being stifled in Catalonia at the minute? But anyway. Yes, uh, I would actually. Okay. Uh, okay. It's also lovely to be here. Okay. And it's furthermore, it's indoors and warm. And we're, and we're living, uh, just to, I suppose an example of history is happening as we speak, and we're in this most historic setting, in this most historic room as well. So uh, hopefully that's the atmosphere that, well, I know it has pervaded the, the uh, lectures I've been at all week. Um, do statues matter? With Confederate statues being torn down in the southern states of the US, and Putin erecting a statue to KGB founder Felix Dereshinsky, another Stalinist, how does the panel feel about historical statues as symbols Closer to home, the Sean Russell statue in Fairview Park has been regularly vandalized while Nelson's column, as we know, was blown up in the 1960s. Jennifer, this is um, an area uh, not, not far away from your work. Do statues matter? Um, well, yes, I do think statues matter. Okay. Um, Just no, tell me if there's a sound problem, by the way. Oh, can you hear me? Okay, so if you pull up, if you, the problem is I'm sitting in the wrong direction for you. So you face, you talk to the audience and ignore Joe. I'm just Joe. going to ignore Joe, right? Okay. okay. Um, yes, yes, I do think statues matter. Um, of course, you know, there's a, an array of sort of public monuments that are built for many, many different reasons. Um, you know, you have things as basic as a small street memorial, um, which might be built immediately after the fact um, by people who want to remember that person who actually knew them, all the way through to um, monuments constructed by the state or by groups of powerful people to um, propagate a very specific view of the past. Now, obviously, this question comes partly out of all the fuss in the US about statues of, statues of Confederate generals. And this is quite separate from um, war memorials. This is statues specifically of, of generals. Um, now, what I would say is a lot of these um, statues are not the fight... People are saying, oh, you can't get rid of them, you're tearing down the, the history of the war. But the point is, most Confederate statues went up between 1890 and, 19, and 1920. So they're actually not really about the Civil War, but about Jim Crow and about um, asserting segregation and um, also about um, white supremacy. And specifically about part of a systematic campaign to recast the history of the Civil War from being about slavery to being about um, uh, the myth of the heroic um, battle for the lost cause, right, the lost southern cause, which turns into this thing about states' rights, which is very vague and, and it ignores the fact that it's really about slavery. Specifically, the, um, the statue in Charlottesville that saw all the fuss made about it of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, was actually unveiled in 1924 in the middle of a, a two-day gathering of the Sons of the Confederacy, at which um, there was actually a fair bit of KKK agitation. 
it's like Ku Klux Klan, right? Um, so the thing is, if you look at these statues, they're not just about the war that had had by that point happened many years before. It's about that time and place and about reasserting who's in charge here, who has rights here, and don't any of you forget it. So if you're a young black person walking around in Charlottesville and you see this Confederate general statue all the time, it's very clear you know, where you're meant to sit in the social hierarchy. Um, I could give you other examples. There's a really fun one a couple of years ago in, um, in Budapest, in Hungary. Uh, Viktor Orban's government um, erected overnight, by the way, in the middle of the night, it appeared overnight, in the middle of a, a square in the middle of the city, which actually has all kinds of monuments to all kinds of things, a statue commemorating the Nazi occupation of um, Hungary during the Second World War which is toward the end of the war. And it was, it depicted Hungary as a woman, you know, very, you know, beautiful woman being attacked by an enormous German eagle. And the narrative it's saying is we were suffering, we were put upon, and then those horrible Nazis came along and occupied us. What it completely ignores and writes over is the fact that up until that point, you have a Hungarian government that is cheerfully aiding and abetting in the Holocaust. But all of that is being written over and um, you know, attempted to be ignored. So what this statue is about is an attempt by the current right-wing government to rehabilitate the Horthy government that was around in that time and was actively collaborating in the Holocaust. So these statues do matter because a lot of the time they're not about the past so much as about constructing a version of the past that supports certain people in power in the present. Okay, yeah. Donald, Donald. <laughs> okay, that. Yeah, we, we, we have a, a very kind of contested landscape in Ireland historically with monuments. And Ireland's a bit of an exception to the rule because normally m monuments are put up, statues are put up by the victorious side. In Ireland, it's tended to be either way. You know, nobody has put up more monuments in this country than the National Graves Association. So you find loads of monuments around Ireland to anti-treaty IRA you know, figures who lost the Civil War. What you don't find that when you walk through the streets of Dublin is any sense that this was the second city of an empire. You know, you'll struggle to find an equestrian statue anywhere in Dublin. The British had a great fondness for equestrian statues and we, we had a great fondness for blowing them up. But I suppose what's, what's interesting about the Sean Russell Monument, and I wasn't surprised that was brought up in recent weeks, actually. Like, the Sean Russell Monument went up in the 1950s. The first time it was vandalised, it was vandalised by the right. You know, Sean Russell originally had his fist raised like this, uh, and his arm was cut off the monument. And people said, oh, he was a communist collaborator. You know, he went to Soviet Russia in the 1920s, part of an IRA delegation looking for military assistance from the Soviet Union. Later on, he's, he's described as a Nazi collaborator. I don't think Sean Russell was either of those things. I think he embodied that very narrow school of Irish republicanism. You know, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity and I'll deal with anyone along the way. I don't think Russell had any great ideology whatsoever. But I wasn't surprised that that monument was brought up in, in, in recent times. But it is important to make the point that Russell was first vandalised by the right and not the left. You said well, you weren't surprised that it was brought up. Do you think it should be brought down? Which is... Which is... I, I mean, I, I would take one Padre O'Donnell over a thousand Sean Russells. You know, he embodies that very narrow school mm. of Irish nationalism. Uh, and I don't think it's, a, it's not a particularly great monument either, to be honest. There are better, there are better monuments artistically. And for those, for, the, for those who don't know, the Sean Russell statue is in Fairview Park, and you, you probably are not near North Strand Forest Station. It's fairly prominent, actually, very bu uh, busy thoroughfare, and um, very close, Katrina, to where you live. Absolutely, I see it every day, and it, it added to the gaiety of the nation, usually, for a while, when they tore down the original statue, which was a vile and horrible statue. Even if one liked Sean Russell, you couldn't possibly like this statue. It was concrete, he was teeny-weeny, out of proportion, one of his arms obviously shorter than the other, um, on a plinth. It was awful. So, uh, who, I can't remember 
Labour, who it was who decided to, to commission a new statue in bronze, if you don't mind. And now he's standing there in bronze, in a bronze overcoat, uh, looking far more elegant than he was originally. But when that went up first, uh, persons unknown spent their weekends painting swastikas mm -hmm. all around the, the plinth. Very beautifully, I mean, graphically to a very high standard, enraging those who had put it up, who would then come and scrub them off, only to find new ones appearing the next weekend. So this cheered everybody up for quite a while, and um, then it stopped because people got fed up. But it uh, and there may have been a row in the depths of night at some stage where they were, they were um, given a beating or something, I don't know. But, you know, Sean Russell did die in a Nazi submarine. There's no contesting that. Uh, he was uh, accused, possibly falsely, of attempting to kill the King of England, uh, which one can be agnostic about in some ways, perhaps. But he certainly didn't really do a great deal to, to help Irish people. Nonetheless, when the statue went up first in 1951, there were 5,000 people marched uh, from O'Connell Street up to Fairview Park to honour this man. And I suppose it tells us a lot about the tenor of the time there. Just to, to go on a little bit from what uh, Jennifer was saying, her interesting peroration, particularly on, on Hungary. When uh, Eastern Europe opened up again after 1989, Hungary did a very interesting thing about their statues of Horthy and Stalin and Lenin. They removed them all to a park just outside the city. So you can go and visit them there if you want to. In other words, if they are great cultural artifacts, which they aren't, but if some people think they are, they can go there and see them in comfort and with proper contextualized information. That is one potential solution to the, to me, entirely bogus claim that the Confederate statues, as Jennifer has very, very ably demonstrated, are part, are part of a, a wonderful cultural heritage that is offensive to get rid of. Um, we're, we're now, but one of the interesting outcomes, I suppose, of the dreadful events in Charlottesville, and we should not forget that, that a young woman lost her life there, um, this new death by car thing is terrifying in terms of, of how people are taking up new ways of, of using vehicles to kill people. <laughs> Our own darling IRA was bloody good at it in its day too. They gave us the car bomb, congratulations. And now we have another way of using cars to kill people. But it has opened up a discussion in the United States about the meaning of these statues, uh, uh, the sorts of information that you're getting from Jennifer are now becoming, that's now becoming the kind of thing that people know about them. They understand that they are based on a political agenda. And, you know, people like Robert E. Lee are being looked at in much greater detail than they have been. Not, I would say, by one side rather than the other, because that's the way it is. He was a person who owned some slaves. His wife owned more. He wrote in a letter to his wife in 1856 that he thought <coughs> slavery was a moral evil, but it was worse for white people than black people. Hello. Um, and that he didn't see any reason that it could be dissolved any time in the near future. God would oversee its dissolution in due course, but that would not be in his, his lifetime. So whatever about the state's rights arguments, and I, I agree with Jennifer, these are largely bogus. Uh, no one can believe that Robert E. Lee was not fighting for the retention of slavery. And if that is not insulting to black people and people of color in America now, I don't know what is. Uh, what they're going to need has come, and it's not going to happen soon, to a, a rapprochement where people's varying versions of their past are respected, but where something is so <coughs> obviously offensive as the statue of a general who fought to retain slavery because he considered African Americans to be inferior human beings. That has to stop. Okay. Yeah, the Tate Gallery in London, Joe, had an exhibition a few years ago called Art Under Attack. 
And they look at monuments around the world that have been blown up, dragged down, smashed to pieces, ridiculed. And to the shame of the Irish, we had two rooms devoted to ourselves <laughs> in that exhibition. <laughs> the next question is, is almost sequential. With the commemoration of the Civil War coming up in the next few years, how would the panel like to see its significance commemorated without storing up old enmities? Has or have there been any commemorations of the Irish Civil War in the past, e.g. on the uh, around the 60s? This is the question, was, was the Civil War, okay, we know about 1966, Katrina, but was the Civil War on the 50th anniversary coming up to, what, 71, 72, 73, no, because 69, what, what because? No, and I wish we could stop talking about commemorations. I think what we did last year was an interrogation and a reflection. It produced nuanced, interesting perspectives on 1916s, many of which we hadn't seen before, including, Joe, your own remarkable book on the child casualties of 1916, which was an entirely new unresearched story up to that point. I think what people want now is more information about what actually happened, more information about the unheard voices, like casualties, uh, like women, who have now thankfully come much more greatly to the fore in terms of, of examining what they were doing and, and what activities they engaged in during this period. Where, I mean, I wouldn't hold your breath either about whether the state is going to do a great deal uh, for the War of Independence and the Civil War. These are highly contested, difficult uh, conflicts. Civil wars are always awful. There's no way they are not awful. And ours was a particularly horrible one. We did not lose all that many people. 3,000 died. But it, the, the wounds remained and arguably still remain to this day in the form of our two biggest political parties. So we, we, we have trod very, very gingerly around the Civil War. We've certainly commemorated 1922 and the, the birth of the new state, the actual formal mm -hmm. um, accession to independence for the 26 uh, counties. But the Civil War, no, has been commemorated, as Donald pointed out. You will find lots of, of memorials and statues around the country to anti-treaty uh, um, uh, volunteers. Um, but it really hasn't been looked at. One of the hopeful things is that more sources are becoming available. Yeah. We have the Bureau of Military History now, which covers 1916 and the War of Independence independence, fantastic local sources there for people to look at what happened in their own neighborhoods. And now we have coming online the military service pensions files, which do cover the Civil War, the Bureau does not, um, that give us information about people who uh, who served in the Civil War on both sides. Uh, de Valera included the anti-treaty people when he came into power in 1932. So that material is going to change our perspective on all of this. Uh, and I hope that we can approach it uh, in a spirit of, I hate the word reconciliation to a certain degree, but we really have to think about it, that we have to not revive old enmities, not get stuck into the take it down from the flag Irish traitors stuff, um, take it down from the post, is it? Down from the mast. Take it down from the mast is the flag we Republicans claim. It will never be flown by free staters because you're brought on it nothing but shame. You see, what I remember from my childhood about all this, <laughs> the stuff doesn't go away easily. But we are, I think, better placed because of last year. And I'm, I'm delighted with last year as someone involved in the history game that we actually managed as a nation to come through it with such sophistication, with such compassion, with such a broad-minded view of all of the different aspects of what was going on in 1916 without insulting anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to, to look at so many different perspectives and facets. I hope we'll be able to do the same. And I hope the state 
gets full-heartedly behind the historical inquiry into the War of Independence and the Civil War. But Donald, there was one uh, contentious, at least one, uh, I totally agree with Katrina's uh, analysis uh, that it was uh, in the spirit of interrogation and Uh, learning in many ways, but the, the probably the most contentious thing last year, and this is this is the, back to the question about storing up old Emily's, is the, the necrology wall in Glasnevin. Yeah, well, comm- commemoration always tells you more about the time in which the commemoration is happening and the time in which you're, you're remembering. It was the same in 1998. The bicentenary of 1798, the rebellion, was very much shaped by the peace process at the time. I think World War I as well is very much shaped by you know, contemporary concerns. It's a, a rare moment where Catholics and Protestants in Ireland have a shared history. That was controversial. I, I think we will need to see some kind of national uh, civil war memorial. It'll be less contentious, perhaps. Yeah. I think the, the, the issue with the wall in Glasnevin was that it listed British soldiers yeah. alongside rebels and civilians. I think people will be more open to that kind of wall when it comes to the civil war. The Bureau of Military History, I mean, that's the big, the big issue with the BMH statements is that they stop there. Yeah, they stop at that point right. in 22. We owe a great deal. Historians owe an awful lot to Ernie O'Malley. Uh, what, what a man, Ernie O'Malley. You know, art, art collector, uh, drinking buddy of John Wayne, photographer, revolutionary, yeah. great writer. Blower Ernie O'Malley. Archives. Had, yeah, he had the good sense to go around the country and don't talk to people uh, about the Civil War. And his books, they're out now. They're publishing them county by county. They're not coming, they're not coming out as quickly as we'd like because his handwriting is impossible to read but they're called The Men Will Talk To Me. And Ernie O'Malley went into the country and he talked to people who were on both sides of the Civil War divide and he got those oral histories from the Civil War. And they're going to be very, very important. Historians are only now getting around, I think, to writing about the Civil War in in a meaningful way. John Dorney just published a book, The Civil War in Dublin. I think it is a remarkable publication. Uh, And hopefully it's the beginning of more and more work on the Civil War. But it is difficult. The lack of sources in terms of oral history, like the BMH for the War of Independence, the Easter Rising, makes it difficult to write about the Civil War, I think. Okay, Jennifer, Jennifer, I want you to come in, but I want to add the, a question I see much further down, um, to, because I know it's your specific uh, area, and you mentioned your book. Um, why do we commemorate bloody horrific events like, I presume, the Civil War, why, like the First World War, and what role does it serve? Now, you've, you've, your book, did you actually visit all these museums and, yeah, and, and analyze? Okay, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so. Why this happens varies from time to time, right? So the reason people are commemorating something like the First World War right afterwards, you know, is mixed. It's part political, you know. um, uh, It's interesting. There's a lot more of it in Victoria's states than um, states that have lost, obviously. Like, so there's that whole question there. Um, And some of it is the state justifying the losses required for victory. So recasting the um, tremendous carnage in terms of a a narrative of of victory. And thus, it was all worth it, everybody, and here's a nice big monument and a commemoration and a ceremony. At the same time, there's ordinary people who've lost lost people in the war. You know, the First World War kills 9, 10 million, depending on your estimate, right? And and so there's, you know, large numbers of people who literally... Um, want to remember someone they know who has died and they um, bodies are not repatriated so the British Empire which you know includes obviously the Irish who fought with the British forces in the First World War they make a decision that they're not going to repatriate any of the bodies so families don't have a grave site to go to so a lot of um, local communities construct war memorials which have listed on them the names of the dead and they're the focal point for 
you know, for ceremonies, for commemorative ceremonies, which then, of course, end up being tied into the fabric of the town. It's usually the usual local worthies oversee putting them up and, um, and organise the ceremonies around them on significant dates, like Remembrance Sunday, for example. And people go there, but early on, this is an act of, of mourning and remembrance for, for ordinary people. So you have people who go in black, widows who turn up. You know, there's film footage of... Um, of like no, November 1919 in central London, it's just a sea of people wearing black and, and laying wreaths and, um, you know, who are um, actively upset. And there's journalists writing at the time saying they can hear the wails of women in the two-minute silence. It's, they hear, it's silent except for this, the whirring sound of the, the film cameras at the time, like taking silent film footage and the occasional sobs or keening wails of women. So that, that is a real mm. thing that it's for. And that's at the time, though. But then over time, you know, what happens over time? You get, um, as, the, as the people have actually lost somebody die or the loss fades away over time, then what function do all these monuments continue to have? And that shifts. So you get an inter interesting tracking of... Um, numbers of people going to these sorts of commemorative events and going to um, you know, events at, held at war memorials and war sites. It, tra it trails off in the 1930s, but then what happens is the Second World War happens, and so countries that are involved in the Second World War, you see an uptick of activity. What happens is they, they, they've all built these First World War monuments, and so they add the names of the dead of the Second World War on the same monuments. And, and they're again used, and again, you know, there's a lot of use of them in the 50s, and then again, it tails off again. But what is what happens? It's really interesting. Is in the, about the 1980s, 90s, activity really picks up again. But at that point, it's not really about remembering people you care about anymore. It becomes states get really involved, and they really want to push a particular narrative of the past. You know, um, they want to push. You know, we were involved in this war, and it was a good thing, and it proves you know certain things about our national past. Um, and, you know, and in places like Australia, it's very overt. You have specific governments saying that the birth of the nation is the First World War and we were there and we had a baptism of fire on the battlefield and, you know, that is our national story. And it's really heavily pushed, particularly by conservatives, but frankly, everyone's in on it. And it neatly overwrites the actual history of the country, which does involve that, but also involves, like, you know, dispossessing all the Indigenous people and taking their land and the fact that, you know, a bit embarrassing, like, you know, the whole um, European settlement of the place starts with transporting criminals, right? So, you know, that's a, a less heroic narrative than one that is all about a bunch of blokes who go and fight very bravely and sacrifice themselves and, and so on and so forth. So that's really pushed, but it becomes massively more popular way, way, way after the event, and then it has okay. nothing to do with mourning by that point. And it, and it, it, but people say they feel really emotional, but what they're feeling emotional about is much less clear, because this is not somebody you actually knew. It's feeling sad about a story. So, I, I, one of the interesting things that I had the good fortune to be involved in over the last few, in, in 2015 was collaborating with the National Museum and a new production, so it was site-specific theatre, on a play called Pals, which was the story of the Irish in Gallipoli. Now, again, what Jennifer says is absolutely true. Uh, we were trying to do something that isolated individual stories about World War I, about an event that really wasn't being explored in Ireland. And there are certain historians in Ireland who deserve so much credit, uh, Miles Dungan in particular, for opening up the whole narrative about Irish involvement in World War I over the last 30 years, when, when there was an omerta 
silence in operation about it for a very long time. That is not good history, and it's not good for people who wish to mourn, even if that mourning can become attenuated, as Jennifer has said. And Kevin Myers, of course. Kevin Myers, who has his flaws, but certainly um, did a good job on that. But uh, the PAL story is really interesting. That that This is a very common thing in Britain, that people of the same profession or who shared an interest joined up together as PAL's uh, units in in the the British Army. In our case, we had one, and they were rugby players. Mm -hmm. And they all joined up together on the same day under the influence of the IRFU, who exhorted its members to join. And they're young men. I mean, it's Jamie Heaslip and Brian O'Driscoll, you know, going off to war. There's a a spirit of adventure and fun and camaraderie and all of this going on. So uh, in a news impeccable way of dealing with history, they isolated four of these people, real people, who we know about because there was a book published in 1917 by one of their members who survived. Uh, And it told the story of how they joined up, how they arrive in Gallipoli, how on the second day there, half of them, half of their unit is killed. The misery of, I mean, they were drinking blood from sand because the Turks had poisoned all the the wells so they couldn't get access to water. They were sitting ducks. It was the most ill-conceived military campaign, perhaps, Mm -hmm. of the entire First World War. Um, And what you're looking at there is trauma, not planned for, not understood. The horrible realization that what you thought you were going to was glory and adventure, only to find that your, one of your best friends has his brains blown out into your lap as he's sitting beside you. Mm-hmm. Of, of our soldiers, one survived and uh, was discharged from the army for alcoholism some years later. Another killed himself. Uh, three years after he left the army and we had one working class bloke who survived, whose wife we brought into the picture because Mm. she was a separation woman and wanted to kill him because he was deserting the army and she wanted him to stay in the army so she could get her money. So again, you're trying to bring in bits and pieces that matter there. But the response to that was overwhelming. People wanted real stories about real people Mm -hmm. that did not in any way glorify World War I. You don't have to glorify a dreadful, savage war that killed millions of people, both civilians and combatants, um, to talk about the people who participated in it. So many Irishmen uh, fought in World War I, and to wipe them out as part of our history was a dreadful thing to do. And I think we're far better fixed now because of the work of, of historians and because of drama like that and like Black Watch and various other things that have happened over the years uh, to understand what the person's stories were and to understand how dreadful a war it actually was. Don't forgive me, I want to... I want to that play. They really... I'm oh, sorry, I took yeah. my students to see that play and they really, yeah, really... Yeah, really yeah. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people commemorated World War One in Dublin every year in the yeah. 1920s and yeah, 30s. Remembrance yeah. yep. Sunday was a phenomenal event mm-hmm. in Dublin. There were far more poppies sold in Dublin in the 1920s and 30s. And where was the main event? College Green, was it? College Green and they had to move... Oh no, Duffy, the Guard Commissioner said that because of the blatant displays of imperialism from the students of Trinity College Dublin. <laughs> they had to move it up to the Phoenix Park. And it was attacked every year, actually. Frank Ryan mm-hmm. used to lead the kind of IRA poppy-snatching squads, as they were known. But tens of thousands of people commemorated World War I every yeah. year. If you walk through Trinity College Dublin, the, the post-grad reading room, N-I-K-H in the stone work, you know, the Greek goddess for victory. That's the World War I memorial of Trinity College. That's unveiled by Eamon de Valera in the 1930s. So I think the idea that World War I is forgotten in Ireland post-independence is wrong. There's tens of thousands yeah. of people remembering it in the 20s, 30s and 40s. Okay, while I have you there, Don, just to move on and to, to lighten it a little bit, I, I, I suspect uh, this, this email might have been trying to catch 
catch you out. Yeah. Um, uh, he gives his name. He said, in the center of O'Connor Bridge, there is a plaque to Father Pat Noyes, who, it is said, died under mysterious circumstances in August 1919. Could the panel possibly said, shed some light uh, on, on this figure uh, of Irish history? And is there any link between it and the Millennium Clock? Yeah, trick question. Give us. People, people remember the Millennium Clock. The time as the time of the slime. slime. Yeah. Uh, it didn't work very well. It wasn't waterproof. We put it into the River Liffey. Brilliant. But there was a box on the O'Connell Bridge where you could get a, a time-stamped postcard. Okay. Millennium Clock. Exactly how many days, minutes, seconds were left until the turn of the millennium. And when the, the Millennium Clock was removed, that gap in the bridge was there for many years. And this was just basically pranksters. Who, uh, who put a plaque in this fictional character, Father Pat Noyes. It mentions this, one of his advisors, Pat Clancy, you know, a real <laughs> figure in the War of Independence, was, was killed as well. But the funny thing is, when they put it there, the pranksters, one of the newspapers went down with a video camera the next day, and they stopped people, and they said, how long is that there? And Dublin said, oh, that's there years. I remember that in the 90s. <laughs> so it was, it was a prank. But a few, a few months ago, someone put a, a plaque, a little plaque, on uh, one of the seats on the Cable Street Bridge. It's brilliant. It says, you know, this bench is dedicated to all Irish men and women who lived with a terrible secret. They didn't like Guinness. So, <laughs> there's always been pranksters in Dublin. This goes way, way back. There's Don't always been people survive. pulling pranks. I call on the microphones now. If I think, have we, have we people with microphones? Yeah, the, the, the woman in, this, in the second row, I'll go, go to your question first in, in, a few, in a few moments. But I want to... Um, throw in, uh, change the, the subject uh, completely, or the angle completely, does the panel think that comparisons between the present day and the 1930s are appropriate? Do Brexit and Trump, now I know we could do Brexit and Trump for the full hour, but it's a history session in that sense. Do Brexit and Trump represent the crumbling of the old order and is the world in, uh, in danger of war all over again? Is it fair to compare Trump to Hitler and Mussolini? So I just, yes, I, but I, maybe the question should be, give, what era of history does the current times most resemble and why? See, Jennifer, 1,500 words. Uh, so what I was going to say is I don't like that kind of comparison. I mean, I think there's a lot of partial parallels you can draw, but what I wanted to say is the big thing to remember is we jumped to Hitler and Mussolini for um, right-wing populism in the United States, but the truth is America has its very own homegrown history and tradition of populism and of white supremacy. And one thing to remember is that Hitler actually found inspiration for his own eugenic ideologies and um, race-based lawmaking in the United States. Um, so the thing to remember is, you know, Jim Crow, which, you know, establishes segregation in the South, is also accompanied by an awful lot of laws um, you know, which um, deprive black people of any meaningful right to vote, which um, something to think about is that 34 or 48 states in the US in the 30s had anti-miscegenation laws, i.e. it was illegal for whites to marry Asians or for whites to marry blacks and that sort of thing. And um, the thing about that is that... Um, and, you know, the, the, the penalty for this, for example, in the state of Maryland was 10 years imprisonment. And um, in Mein Kampf, Hitler calls America the one state which is making progress toward the kind of racial order he wanted for Germany. And in 1935, the National Socialist Handbook for Law and Legislation, so a handbook for Nazis who were going to make laws, declared that the U.S. had... Um, actually achieved the fundamental recognition of the kind of race-based state that the Germans were looking for. And in 1928, Hitler himself, you know, praised, again, um, these US laws around, around race. So th what I wanted to point out is that we reach for this comparison in Germany 
but it's forgetting that actually, you know, America has its own history of um, of race laws, of entrenched segregation, of white supremacy, of you know, um, and of um, you know right-wing populist political movements um, that are, you know, actively, you know, lynching and um, entrenching um, laws to keep racial separation and all these sorts of things, which are then later mirrored in the Nuremberg laws, right, specifically making it illegal for certain kinds of marriages to occur. So I, 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 what I wanted to say is that, you know, we reach over here to Europe for the example, but forget that actually there's a long genealogy of yeah, this within true. the United States. So, you know, I don't know if the era comparison is the right one. Okay. One of the things Don't the 1930s brings to mind is the, the breakdown of democracy in Spain. <laughs> we're kind of seeing that uh, happen again. I think we're very oversimplistic, though, when it comes to Brexit. We talk about Brexit as this great moment for the right. I mean, there's a very strong Eurosceptic tradition in Britain from the left as well. Look at the last UK election. Like millions more people voted for Brexit than have ever voted for UKIP. You know, Jeremy Corbyn wants to nationalise the railways in Britain. You're not allowed to do that in the European Union under competition laws. You know, not everyone who voted for Brexit uh, is a racist. I think there's a gross oversimplification of, of Brexit now we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Katrina? I think uh, uh, Jennifer just uh, made a very eloquent case, which is something that really bears thinking about. Franklin Roosevelt could not act on lynching, which was still prevalent in the 1930s and early 40s, right into the, the, the 50s and 60s in the United States. Um, could not deal with the whole business of criticizing what was happening to Jews in Germany and the occupied states in Europe because of the fact that he could not put an end to lynching. And that was because the Democratic Party was was white supremacist party in the southern states at that time, and he was not prepared to challenge them. So Jennifer has just created a complicated narrative for all of this, which I think bears bears thinking about. But I also think we're out of, there's another thing too about voting in America. What's been happening for the last 10 years is a a process called redistricting, which has been assiduously pursued by the Republican Party. And what they're doing is redrawing the boundaries of voting areas in different states. And they've been allowed to do it by the Democrats, who took their eye completely off the ball. Obama let this happen during the eight years he was in power. If you look at the map of North Carolina as an electoral um, entity now, it's like that and all the bumps are going round areas where democratic and largely black and Latino communities live. So it's the same thing by another means. It is certainly uh, full of political intent, but it's also mixed with white supremacist ideas in various ways too, so there we are. As regards Mr. Trump and um, his works and pomps, I think uh, Hitler was a very dangerous and evil person, there's no doubt about that, so was Mussolini. Trump is dangerous and evil in a different way because he's profoundly stupid. Uh, We have two spoiled infants with strange hair about to plunge us into World War III if we're not careful, himself and that other idiot in North Korea. Uh, I would probably say that too loudly, or perhaps he can get me with a poisoned umbrella or some of that stuff. But I mean, this is ridiculous. How did this happen that we have two such people uh, engaging with each other in a complete complete free fall at the moment, immune to any advice? The young fellow in North Korea uh, has been doing this without any letter hindrance for a long time and been ignored by and large by sensible American presidents. But Trump is incapable of ignoring anything that hits at his self-esteem. Uh, and I'm very scared about what's going to happen with all of this because, you know, it's one thing to be saying where we, you know, we, the, the fascist chain of running dogs in America need to be taken down a peg or two. It's another thing to be actually flying missiles over Guam. To be actually doing it. 
uh, and then to be met with threats of fire and fury from the other side. So this is not an easy time, but it's not the same as an ideological mm. shift of the kind that we saw in Europe or indeed in America in those earlier times. It's kind of idiocracy rather than anything else. I, I was reading this week Hillary Clinton's, um, I was saying this here earlier, Katrina, Hillary Clinton's memoir, What Happened, and she, um, her big comparison is Watergate, is the time around Watergate. Obviously, she's hoping Trump will be impeached as well. But she then goes on to say, and this, this is her, given that we, we talk about North Korea a lot, she believes, and this runs, this is a thread right throughout the book. It's not, it's okay, there's uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Trump's uh, misogyny, except we all know about, but her big thread throughout the book is Russia, is Putin. And she says at one stage, when she talks about Watergate, I lived through Watergate, I was a young attorney working for the House Judiciary, impeached from the quarry into Nixon. I listened to the tapes, I dug into all the evidence of Nixon's uh, crimes. What we are facing now, an attack on our democracy by our principal foreign adversary, potentially aided and abetted by the president's own team, is much more serious. As Americans, that is our inheritance, we should be proud. You're talking about the, after the Second World War Marshall Plan. We should be proud of that, but we should protect it. Um, between Trump and Putin, she doesn't, China doesn't get a look in in the whole book. North Korea barely gets a mention, but she says between Trump and Putin, all that is at risk. Anyway, the, the woman in the second row there who had a question, I think, about the 1930s as well, the, in the red jumper, yeah. Um, I was just... Uh putting the question, was uh, De Valera's economic war, despite everything, the most romantic of uh, the acts of Irish rebellion in the 20th century? Romantic? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I guess our vision of the 1930s is changing all the time, and um, uh, romance flourishes under the most extraordinary circumstances we have found, otherwise the human race would have come to an end. Uh, the economic war was a very severe measure. But one of the interesting things to reflect on is that when de Valera, largely due to the economic war, went to uh, England, to London, in 1938 for the first proper Anglo-Irish talks, um, he got most of the things he went to get. The one thing he couldn't get was an end to partition, which was never going to happen. And where uh, Sean McEntee had a ferocious row with him. He was a Belfast Catholic and he understood that this was not going to happen just because Dev wanted it to, that there was a huge population of Protestants in the North who did not wish to be in a united Ireland and he was going to have to face it sooner or later. And there's a wonderful letter that you'll find in the online uh, documents in Irish foreign policy, McEntee's letter, which, uh, where he threatens to resign but doesn't, is there. And it's so much ahead of its time. 1938, it's making arguments that come up much, much later in the 1980s and 90s, ultimately leading to the peace process. But he got an end to the land annuities, which was a huge burden on people, uh, which were the, the residue of the the, the really serious revolution in land ownership that took place between about 1880 and 1923. 75% of the land of Ireland was transferred from landlord to tenant in that period. So you could say the real revolution, because the land war was a very big deal uh, and a very big precursor to, to the political and military revolutions. Um, that had happened. What it did was to create a conservative Catholic landholding class with small holdings, about 30 acres, a little more which had its own consequences for the way that the, the country 
developed. Uh, the annuities were a great thing to get rid of. Um, and we got our ports back. Um, uh, Berhaven, probably the other two, I've forgotten, Loxwilly, and there was a, a third one, which I can't remember right now. So that was a big deal. And we didn't give them back either during World War II, when it might be argued there was a question, I think, about neutrality in World War II. That would have breached the concept of neutrality to give these ports back to Britain. Uh, you could argue in an anti-fascist sense we should have, but that's another day's uh, talking. I mean, one of the big social occasions, speaking of romance in the 1930s, was the Eucharistic Congress. Um, everyone had a ball. I mean, you know, you'd see a lot of bishops and priests marching about in dresses. I think they should look at that sometime and see what exactly that's all about. And, you know, it's nice to see people in interesting uniforms, but maybe the time has come. Anyway, um, but there's also people going out and about eating and drinking in Dublin, having a great out time for themselves. Um, and the social aspects of those kinds of things are, are, are hugely important and need further exploration than we've given them. But, you know, I mean, none of us can judge. My mother was born in 1926. She remembers the 1930s as a girl being a really interesting time, as it is for all of us when we're growing up, whenever it happens to be. And looking back at it from a position of superiority uh, from this vantage point may not serve us too well. So you may well be right that it was romantic. Okay, just a couple of quick questions, that gentleman and then the gentleman who told me earlier he'd asked the question. Go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you, uh, panel. Um, can I bring you back to the Civil War and the undemocratic uh, party in the Civil War the treaty had been passed by the Dáil, and it was the minority who decided to revolt against it. May I ask the panel, what were the anti-treatyites hoping to achieve? Should they have won? Were they expecting to reignite and reopen the war with Britain again? Or were they hoping to go back and renegotiate another treaty without the crown and without the oath? There was never any question of getting back the North. The North had already been set up yeah. before the treaty. So we were all led to believe in our younger years it was all about the North. It wasn't. That was, in my view, uh, a deception. I'd just like to get your views. If the anti-treatyites had a what one, if, what, what if. would have happened? You're onto something interesting there, actually, because the, if you look at the, the debates on the treaty in the Dáil, uh, like, partition isn't really mentioned. You know, it's very rarely touched upon. People are talking about the, the oath of allegiance and the like. And some people like Liam Mellows and, uh, and Countess Markovic are there in the law making the, kind of the, the, the left-wing argument. But for the, for the most part, partition isn't really, isn't really discussed. So because of the Government of Ireland Act two years earlier, partition, I think, was a kind of accepted, an, an accepted reality. I think they knew that was, that was there, that was on the table. What did they want? The anti-treatyites were a very, very broad front. I mean, if you look at the Battle of Dublin, on O'Connell Street in 1922, you have the Irish Citizen Army, they were there as a force, the anti-treaty IRA, they had very, very different, they had very broad social ideas of what Ireland should look like across the anti-treatyites. And I, I think Liam Mellows was right, they didn't really have a social program. I think they, 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 they were lacking a social vision going into it. it was, for them, it was, it, was, it was all slogans, I think. Okay, just on that gentleman there, I'm conscious of time, in the second row, in the second row, Third row, sorry, yeah, sir. And that gentleman there, okay, next. Go ahead, sir. That's great, thanks. Um, just a bit of background to it. Uh, my surname is Crowther. Uh, my great-grandfather was a British soldier who met an Irish woman when he was based here in the 19th century. He uh, married her, converted, married her, and when he retired from the English army, they settled in Dublin in 1912, which of course is one year after the 1911 census. So none of them are in the 1911 census, but when I looked it up, it's full of Crowthers, and I realized at that stage, 
where did they all go? Because they weren't in Ireland when I was growing up. And I, there was a Reverend Crowther down in Arklow. They were dotted all over the country. So I'm assuming they were mainly Church of England, Church of Ireland, and had left after independence. So my question is, where did all the Protestants go after independence? Katrina. Most of them stayed here, actually. Um, there was a considerable transfer of public servants to the north of Ireland uh, after uh, 1922. And there were particular uh, protocols put in place so that people could transfer from public service jobs from here up to the north. And they were mainly Protestant members of the um, administration. They went there. Others moved to the north too. Some people went to England. But most Protestants were not rich and they couldn't afford to leave. So a lot of them stayed where they were. I certainly remember Protestant communities and towns all over Ireland when I was growing up in the, in the 50s and 60s, um, who were certainly distinct communities with distinct cultural and religious values, some of them very interesting. Um, but not a, I don't think there was a wholesale exodus. They were never, remember, a majority in any case in Ireland. Uh, there's certainly plenty of evidence that people with big houses, many of which were burned, so they know where to be, uh, went to, to London, went to Britain and uh, across the water. But they would have been the rich ascendancy Protestants who had the money to be able to, to relocate somewhere else. But, you know, Sean O'Casey was a Protestant and he stayed here until he was booted out by WB Yeats and Lady Gregory and went to, to London and swore never to come back. Um, there were plenty of working class Protestants in, in Dublin uh, who remained here and were part of, of society for a very long time. Okay, I think the exodus is overstated. Okay, that gentleman there in the front row. Could I bring you right up to date? The question I would like to ask is, we have lots of uh, chief executives of IT companies in Ireland and the companies to go with them. Now, I'm a Luddite at heart, and I would like to know, what do you think is going to happen to incomes in the world as well as in Ireland, where I intend to live for another while, when IT takes over all physical work? And possibly even. I don't know if that's. Uh, it's, it's, we're, we're at a history yeah. festival. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, should Joe, trade in the past and never the future. I don't like, I don't like well, to predict the future. I totally, I totally agree with you as it happens. But the point is that we have to have an opinion now in order to take the first step into the future. Okay. So anything to be learned down from the past and uh, the history. Well, the economic history is a completely. Uh, different field. That lady there, sorry, the woman in the fifth row, yes, please. Just a brief question about the land purchase that you mentioned. The records that are in Port Leash and are not accessible to the public, um, will they come available eventually or why are they not accessible? That is such a good question. Uh, I Just explain them, Katrina. Okay, sorry. the records of the Irish Land Commission from 1891 up to about the 1960s are have been lodged with the state and they, they, they include the deeds to all the properties which were distributed to tenants. They, they include all the fair rent ledgers where fair rents were set by the Land Commission in the, the 1890s for people all over the country. They include amazing leases from the 18th century for land owned by the Church of Ireland, which again was redistributed. So, you know, it, it is, it's, it's probably one of the most significant archives we have for the late 19th, early 20th century uh, right into the middle of the 20th century uh, uh, in Ireland. And they are in um, 
uh, a locked building in Portleash under the auspices of the what remains of the Land Commission, which is a few poor superannuated souls who are still there keeping an eye on things, but ultimately in the charge of the Department of Agriculture. And many attempts to prise these things loose and get them out into the public domain have failed. We need more public support for it. We need people to get really angry and to say, and historians to get angrier than they are too, because this has thousands of PhDs in it and possibly a huge change in the way that we understand social change in Ireland over that period. It was the biggest social change we had uh, during the, the, the whole revolution okay, period. I want to, also I want to bring Jennifer back in, so I want to go ahead, sir. Hello, um, thanks. Um, yeah, just in relation to commemorations or investigations uh, that was mentioned, I suppose one area that I would have been quite conscious of that wasn't really uh, touched on very much uh, was in relation to the border and the people of um, the other part of the island uh, who were part of uh, Ireland uh, back in 1916, yet there was a great reluctance uh, and very little mention of, of uh, their involvement and participation, and uh, both at the time and, and in present day. And then also a little bit more controversially uh, in relation to violence and the violence of 1916, which uh, to a great degree uh, is treated in one way and violence in more recent times in the north of Ireland has been treated uh, considerably different. And during the, the talks, which I agree and were very interesting over, over the, uh, the last year or two, my views have changed on that. And it's not that I'm in favour of violence, but I would see greater justification for violence in Northern Ireland than in 1916. I know that may come as a shock to many people and I could explain it, but I don't want to take up more time. And one question that came in, thank you, sir, is are we hypocritical in our remembrance of history? Why do we celebrate the heroes of 1916 and of the War of Independence yet condemn the actions of the IRA and the Troubles? Now, riddle, riddle that I've one. I've been far too much. Somebody yeah. else should take Donald. <laughs> Go on, Donald. Um, I suppose you could argue that Patrick Pearce and James Connolly had no mandate in 1916. That argument is made all the time. That's, yeah. a, that's a debate that's going on for a long time. I mean, I, I looked at... Uh, 1966, 1976, 1986, how the Rising was commemorated on different anniversaries. Uh, and one of the great posters in 1976 was, we celebrate the 1916 men of violence. You know, so there's always been, there's always been that, that debate over, over 100 years ago versus 30 years ago versus 40 years ago. I don't think it's, it's, it's not a new debate. Like. Okay. okay, Jennifer, there's one question I see here which um, talks about the emergency in World War II in Ireland. Was, was Irish neutrality justified in World War II? Now, obviously, that's not your area, but World War II uh, and your connections. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I was we were chatting in, in the room earlier and I said, I don't want to touch this one. I don't want to be the foreigner who turns up and tells Ireland what they should have done during the Second World War. Um, but I can tell you a story about my, my grandfather was actually stationed in Northern Ireland during the Second World War. Um, he was a Australian guy from Sydney who joined um, the Air Force and they had this thing called the Empire Air Training Scheme where it was people from all over the British Empire were trained. So he was actually trained in Canada, in Barbados, and then was stationed in Northern Ireland. Um, in, uh, he was in coastal command, so they were hunting for German U-boats. This is all part of the um, you know, Atlantic. And, one, and he was stationed in Ballykelly. And one thing he will tell you, he did tell me before he died, obviously, um, is that 
when they take off, they had to be extremely careful not to cross um, Irish airspace. So they sort of like take off and then take a really sharp turn to make sure at no point they, um, you know, violated Irish neutrality. Um, and then I have, and that's something my grandfather told me, and then I have another a family member who was um, a little boy in in living in, in England, but he was evacuated as a child evacuee to Dublin um, to his Irish relatives. And um, they were, li and he was in a house on Haddington Road, one of these ones with loads of families in it at that time. And he describes being a little boy, being utterly shocked to see the German embassy with the great big swastika flags um, hanging out the front of it, and I'm coming, um, you know, as a little kid from England and seeing this and being, you know, utterly, um, utterly, utterly shocked by it all. So, um, I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm must, not kidding. <laughs> must be remembered that within that German embassy there was a radio, and that radio was being tapped by the intelligence services here in Ireland, <laughs> and the information coming from it conveyed to GCHQ in Cheltenham. Yeah. So we were neutral yeah. on the side of the Allies. Yeah. Um, I think de Valera would have caused civil war if he'd, if he'd uh, joined the British. Uh, it, was, it was a tactical decision. Yeah. It looks bad on the surface, but it was probably the only thing he could have done. In the meantime, however, and this stuff took a long time to emerge, that information, any information that was useful to yeah. the, the British intelligence services was going in a steady stream across the Irish Sea. So we can be slightly proud of ourselves for okay. On the other hand, the you know, actually having some Irish ports available probably would have been very handy for the Battle of the Atlantic. So, okay. yeah, you know. Churchill in his victory speech says that we frolic to our heart's content with the Germans and the Japanese. And look at how Ireland behaves during the Second World War when Belfast is bombed. Yeah. De Valera makes the decision to send Dublin Fire Brigade across the border into the north. We intern Germans and generally tend to release Americans yeah. uh, over yeah. the border. There's a, a, the level of intelligence exchange between the Irish state and the British state is remarkable as well. I think it was totally unfair, actually, what Churchill said of Ireland in that speech. Okay. Final question, because I'm way over time. Final contribution. What can be done to get the, 20, or the 1926 census published and digitized. The 1901, the 1911 okay, digitization yeah. had such a benefit to genealogy and tourism. Yes and no. Uh, the, the 1911 census was first released to the public in paper form in 1961, uniquely in the world, 50 years after it was created. It never caused any trouble. People didn't rock up to the Department of the District saying all this private information has been released about me. We've got really nervous about that now. The, the, the trend in other countries is to move back from a 100-year rule to, in some cases, 75 years. And there was great hope that we might be able to get 1926 out in time for last year, for 2016, because it would be so wonderful to be able to compare the last census before independence, 1911, with the first one after independence, 1926, apart at all from the genealogical value and you're absolutely right, it's of huge value to scholars. But the Chiefs at the Central Statistics Office is adamantly opposed to releasing it before 100 years have passed. If you want it, you're going to have to have a campaign about it. The genealogists did, we did in the National Archives, a lot of historians did, deaf ears, I'm afraid. I know there's a huge public demand for it. Maybe Joe should have a special live line program. <laughs> that seems to be one of the few things that makes him up. So on your behalf, I want to thank Donald Fannell. I want to thank uh, Jennifer Wellington. I think this is your first time at the History Festival. Great. And will you be back next year as well, I, <laughs> I suspect. And uh, the, uh, as always, uh, fantastic panel and uh, Katrina Crow, as you all know. Donald, Jennifer and Katrina, on your behalf, I want to thank you.
listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. <laughs>